All right, well, this morning we are in part seven of our series on biblical and reformed worship. And you'll be happy to know that today we're wrapping up the theological perspective on worship. So we're finally, I guess, next week going to get into more of the details, going to leave how it is we ought to study the doctrine or how we ought to approach it from the overarching perspective. And we're going to look more specifically at some of the details and get into some of the specific questions of worship. Of course, our overall goal is to demonstrate the Reformed doctrine of worship and how it's supported in Scripture to give justification for what we believe and why we believe it. And our focus these last few weeks has been to demonstrate how worship is connected with other key doctrines in Scripture. The doctrine of worship flows out of a doctrine of the Scriptures. How has God spoken? What has He? Why has He given us His Word? How are we to appropriate it, interpret it? It flows out of the doctrine of God. Of course, if we're to worship God, we have to know who He is. It flows out of the doctrine of man in the sense of we must know ourselves, our sinfulness, and um, our sinful tendencies, and what the Bible says about our Um, depravity, if we are to rightly understand the pitfalls uh, for improper worship and idolatrous worship. And then, of course, we've talked about worship in light of the doctrine of the gospel. And this is kind of a a really broad uh, uh, sub-point here, the gospel. It can incorporate so many things. And I think over the next, particularly over the next four to five weeks, we're going to see how the gospel Uh, really is at the center of our worship. But right now, in considering the doctrine of worship in light of the gospel, our focus has been on the gospel and Christian liberty. That's what we considered two weeks ago. And we considered, we looked at the confession, what it says about Christian liberty. We looked at how it precedes the articulation of the doctrine of worship in in the confession. And we saw how our confession defined Christian liberty as freedom from man-made rules, but also freedom to serve the Lord without fear. Right? We don't serve the Lord because we have to gain, excuse me, have to earn something. We don't serve the Lord out of fear that if we don't, we're going to get absolutely squashed, right? We serve the Lord in great freedom and joy because of what Christ has done on our behalf. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is kind of the, the twofold nature of Christian liberty. Freedom from man-made rules, but freedom also to serve, knowing that the Lord delights in our obedience, in our worship, uh, because of uh, Jesus Christ and His work on our behalf. And so we considered two weeks ago that this is important because of two very common extremes when it comes to Christian obedience. And anytime I put a question mark here, I'm, I'm hoping for some feedback. Who, uh, there's only a few of you who were here two weeks ago. <laughs> who remembers the two common extremes when it comes to Christian obedience? Kate. One of them was legalism, exactly. The other one is antinomianism, all right? There's two ditches on each side of the road here. And um, we have legalism, which is man-made rules. It's 
seeing rules as a means of our justification or seeing rules as a means of our sanctification. Uh, it's extra biblical rules that are imposed upon others. But on the other side of that is, oh, it's just all about love. We're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. Particularly when it comes to worship, all that matters is if we're sincere. And we consider the pitfalls of both of those two extremes. And we concluded from that, again, recap here. And this is important because for some reason my recorder stopped recording two weeks ago and we missed. We're still going now. (laughs) We missed. uh, It's not up on the website, so I'm trying to cover a little bit of our specifics and since last week was not recorded, or two weeks ago. But we concluded from this that we are free from the commandments of men in regards to worship. And some examples I gave, you know, just Roman Catholic, of course, the use of holy water, penance. Say seven Hail Marys and and you will be restored, you know. And I mentioned briefly even the altar call. Um, I know that's a little bit controversial, But I would argue that it is something that's not found in Scripture. It's not an element of worship that we see in the New Testament. And I think it can give the impression that that is the only, it can give people the impression that the altar call is the only way to be right with God. You might hear that. You need to make a decision for your faith. God calls you to confess Him before men. Come forward, make a profession. And. I see this, and I'm certainly going to argue from the Scriptures, that this is an element of worship that is, falls under that commandment of men that we are free from, and that it can violate our Christian liberty in Christ when it's imposed upon us. Any comments on that? Any feedback, rebuttal? It functions in a very similar way to... Um, penance in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, you commit a sin, or for example, you know, the altar call, at least how I grew up under it, it was uh, not only for those who were making a profession of faith, but it was also for those who wanted to rededicate their life. And there was a lot of emphasis put on, if you've fallen into sin, you need to come forward and rededicate your life and express your desire to be right with God. And Uh, Many theologians and astute observers have uh, pointed out this functions in the very same way as penance does in the Roman Catholic Church. You fall into sin, there's a ritual that you must go through in order to be right with God. Whether that be come confess your sins to the priests, uh, follow in this process of penance and and, uh, uh, ritual of some sort to uh, be right with God again. And this is... Again, extra-biblical, non-biblical things that are brought in and imposed upon God's people that the Reformers would argue violates our liberty that we have in Christ. More on that in just a moment. So we concluded that in worship we must be convinced that the things we do in worship are the commands of God. That there's justification for what we're doing when we come together. And that they are pleasing to God when done in spirit. This, again, motivates us and encourages us that 
what we're gathering to do is pleasing to God. When we do things that aren't in the Word, we don't know whether they are pleasing to God or not. And there are things that which God has promised to bless. This is why we, one reason we talk about the means of grace. The means of grace are the means, the things that God has given us that He has promised to bless. He has promised to hear our prayers when we offer them in Christ's name. He has promised to send His Spirit to enlighten our eyes when the Word of God is proclaimed. He has promised to meet with us in the Lord's Supper and to build us up in the faith. These are things which God has promised to bless. And so we have great confidence and assurance that when we participate in them, God is sanctifying us and that He is pleased with our worship. But again, if it's something that's not found in Scripture, we've come together to, you know... um, I used this example before, it's ridiculous. Underwater basket weaving. We've, we're going to underwater basket weave in the name of Christ and glorify God through, our, through our, for our basket weaving. We don't know that that pleases God. We don't have His promises attached to them. And so to impose those upon others is to violate the principle of Christian liberty. Yes, Kim. That's a big question. First, I would say, first, I would say that you know I would caution you against trying to judge your own spirit. Um, oftentimes, we can be very, very wrong about, and we are very wrong about what we get out of worship, how we feel about worship, uh, things of that nature. It's very subjective and it's faulty. Um, we're called to worship in faith. Faith, in a sense, is entrusting ourselves to God. Right? Trusting His Word. Trusting that when we sit under His Word, even if we don't feel like we got anything out of it, His Word is changing us and nourishing us and feeding us. Uh, but more fundamentally in regards to your question, um, I preached through John chapter 4, I guess back in the fall, and I talked about how I believe Jesus is emphasizing, I think He says both, in regards to most worship in spirit and in truth. He says it twice, and one time, I believe the first time he says it, he's talking about our spirits. You know, a broken and contrite heart, for example, Psalm 51, that God wants sincere worship. But I think he also says, secondly, that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And this is worship that is um, um, spirit-infused. It comes from a heart changed by the Holy Spirit. And it comes in the power of the Spirit. So, I think they're, they're both are legitimately true. But what, what I mean here, are pleasing to God when done in Spirit, is that former. Which is, it's not the mere walking through the rituals of the means of grace. Um, but it's giving ourselves to the means of grace in faith. 
So we don't take the Lord's Supper as if that physical act itself changes us. It's only effectual to those who participate in faith. Does that make sense? That would be different than, um, uh, you know, the, the sacerdotalism of Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, which is, you know, like for example, baptism. Whether it's an infant or an adult, as long as you're baptized, the physical act itself brings regeneration. Or the Lord's Supper, uh, Lutheran theology as well. You simply taking the Lord's Supper, the physical act itself, um, changes you spiritually before God in some, in some sense. Reformers denied this. Must come, the sacraments must be present with the Word. If the Word is not in the ear, then the ritual does nothing. Which is a great argument against infant baptism, but they don't take it that far, unfortunately. Because infants can't understand what's going on. But the Reformers argued very vehemently, though, that the Word must be present, otherwise the sacrament has no effect, uh, is not effectual. And it must be, in a sense, the Word must be present, and it must be from, uh, the, the participant must offer themselves in faith. Exactly, exactly. I guess there are a lot of Old Testament acts. There's things in the Psalms about you know meaning festivals we do not desire. I mean, yeah. yeah, they're they're called for. They're not that they made them up, but they're going through them with the wrong attitude. Yep. And therefore, they're not respected by God because they don't respect God in the process of doing it. Absolutely, that's what part of what Jesus is hitting on there in John four. Yeah. Like the hour is coming. Like things are changing. Um, when you're going to worship in spirit and in truth. Otherwise, you know, because like you said, offerings and burnt offerings I've not desired. God says all throughout the Old Testament. I didn't have this last time, but I added it in because I came across it this week. I thought it was really good. This quote from John Owen. In his teaching, Christ freed his people from the bondage of pharisaical arbitrary impositions Delivering their consciences, that's Christian liberty, from subjection to anything in the worship of God but His own immediate authority. And this should be our aim as well. (coughs) When we gather, that we are free from our conscience from anything in worship but His own immediate authority. It means what God has given us in His Word This is how He has called us to worship. So, that's what we covered. Now I've got about 18 minutes, but it's okay. This is actually, I was struggling to get enough material this week, so. (laughs) It's good. Any questions? Kate? Yeah, it's something that's not found in the Word of God, whatever that may be. 
Um, now, you could, you could do things worshipfully, but then yes. it would just, as long as you, you, aren't, you aren't saying that this is the substitute to worship or this counsel to worship. Yes. Now, this gets into our topic next week, but we'll talk about it a little bit today anyway, um, about the difference between, no laughing, Nate, <laughs> the difference between public and private worship. In private worship, we have a great deal of freedom um, and can do all things to the glory of God, in a sense, from a worshipful perspective and attitude, even underwater basket weaving. But in corporate worship, um, we are, I'm going to argue specifically that we are bound much more strictly by what is explicitly found in Scripture. And this is the basis for the regular principle of worship. Yes, John. Let me throw out something that's a little more concrete. Uh, we're a PCA church where about once a month they would do modern dance as part of the worship service. They would have about half a dozen women go up on the guitars. And to instrumental music, they would do this modern dance and it was part of worship. And we, I, I never quite got it. Like, I, I, I'm not connecting this. So I, I think maybe that's, you know, because sometimes it's hard to get our yes. minds on what are you trying to tell us because we're used to. Yeah. Well, people preach and people sing hymns, so what's yeah. the problem? Yeah. And, and of course, that's not really where you get your problem. Exactly, yeah. It's I, not so much like, that hymn could be written a little better. That's not really it, what we're sweating. Exactly, yeah. No, I, I would agree, and this might be new to some of you, but I would, I would argue that violates the regular principle, violates the Word of God to do an interpretive dance in the corporate worship of God. I would say the same about drama, having a skit, having a play. Um, there's a lot of things, I think, in modern worship that kind of stray away from this principle. Um, yes, Kate? Uh, I just had a question for context and whatnot. Um, would that be something you could do, like, if you go to, like, a Christian school and you have a chapel service? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. That's not, like, that's not a substitute for church. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 without a doubt, the, the regular principle, what I'm trying to articulate here, concerns the Lord's Day public gathering of the church. And so, yeah, there's, it's, it's certainly you know, okay to do an interpretive dance or to drama or anything like that, but not as a replacement for corporate worship, which are the, to be focused on the means of grace, yeah. and um, not in the context of corporate worship when, again, our focus ought to be the Word of God in the, in the way that God has given us uh, to worship Him rightly from, with the Word of God. Does that make sense? And this is tied to... It's tied to a lot of controversial issues like the doctrine of the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. It's tied to the perpetuity of the moral law because we find basically this, our justification for this comes largely from the uh, first three commandments, first four commandments actually, but you know, in taking the Lord's name in vain, not you know, crafting idols, but not Worshiping God in, in ways that He hasn't revealed Himself or, or prescribed. So, we're gonna ha- we're gonna devote an entire probably two weeks to just that topic. But admittedly, I've already mentioned it several times. That's kind of where we're going. So, we don't have to get it all out right now. Okay. So, what I want to talk to today is again our goal is to finish up this big picture. And I just want to talk about Christian liberty in the corporate nature of, uh, of, of the church. And uh, this is going to be brief. I, I basically want to make 
the argument that the Word of God treats corporate worship um, in a way that is different than individual worship, but that our doctrine of worship should flow out of our understanding of the corporate nature of the church. This is kind of a fundamental truth regarding New Testament worship. All of the instruction that we see in the New Testament regarding worship, almost all of it, almost all of it without exception, is corporate. We don't often recognize this. We often think of worship as something we do privately in home. But most of the New Testament instruction on worship, again, almost all of it without exception, looks at it from a corporate standpoint. And so the point I want to kind of communicate today is that when we gather, it's more, it's about more than just our own personal preferences or even what we might consider our own personal edification. And that is directly contrary to a lot of what goes on today in the modern church. And that there is a difference between public and private worship. Again, that's going to be our topic more next week. In public worship, my point today is that we must intentionally place the needs of the community, of the church, of the body, above our own. And I want to kind of defend this point just by pointing to a few scriptures. First, we have Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. Bible. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. A couple of things I want to point out from this passage. talks about entering the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The imagery, the background here is the priestly duties of approaching God in worship. And this argument, of course, is, falls in this greater argument about Christ as our high priest. And that He's basically opened up the way for us so that we don't need an earthly priest to approach God in worship. And from there he talks about, let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith. That answers Kim's question, right? Worship that is to be in faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This is talking about believers. They have true faith. They've made a confession There is baptism in view here. Bodies washed with pure water, right? Leading, uh, bodies washed in a confession of our faith. This is 
These are people who are redeemed, part of the people of God. They have a clean conscience. But notice what he says here. Don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. So again, this is talking about meeting together. Corporate worship is the view here. When we come together on the Lord's Day to worship God. And what is the aim of this? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Again, remember my thesis here, my greater point, which is the needs of others are to be placed even above our own when we come in the context of worship. And that this stirring up one another to love and good works takes place in the corporate gathering of God's people. All right, let's look at Colossians now. Colossians three fifteen and 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You're called in one body. This is the local church here. Remember that you were called in one body. And the purpose, one of the purposes of singing is to teach and admonish one another. You know, singing is not simply about um, you connecting with God. It's not simply about you having an experience and being inspired and having your heart stirred. You know, I think we can hope and pray that that is true. That we do have a joyful experience. That our hearts are stirred by the singing and encouraged. But ultimately, one purpose of singing, a bigger purpose of singing, is to encourage one another. For the greater good and nourishment of the body of Christ. That's why, you know, not singing in church or poorly singing in church isn't just about, you know, you, um, well, I, you know, I didn't connect with the song or I don't know the hymn. Um, we need to remember that, you know, the encouragement and edification of our brothers and sisters uh, is in play here. And if nothing else, we ought to sing for them as well to encourage them, to teach and admonish one another. Yes, Kim. I don't have the text, the Greek text in front of me, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, well, you know, this is being recorded. (laughs) 
I believe the participle there, singing songs and hymns, is congruent with the word, uh, with, with the tense of teaching and admonishing in, in a way that explains how we are to teach and admonish. This is how you are to do it, by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there's also a parallel passage. Again, it's in Ephesians, that's where it is. I was like, okay. Uh, uh, Ephesians, basically, he says the same thing. And um, see if I can find it here real quickly. Does anybody know where it's at? There is a parallel passage where he says basically the same thing. Yes. Um, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns. So that as a parallel passage helps explain it as well. Got to move quickly here. I'm going to blow through real quickly First uh, Corinthians 11 through 14, um, so we can have, still have time for questions at the end. But again, this is part of the greater argument. What I'm trying to show here is that a lot of instruction in the New Testament regarding worship calls us to look to our brother and sister in Christ and put their preferences above our own. I'm not going to read through this, but I'll leave some of the references up there. We have 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 20. He's talking about when you come together, this is worship, corporate worship, and he's talking about their observance of the Lord's Supper, and he's rebuking them because one goes hungry, another gets drunk. And he says, well, I commend you in this, no, I will not. The Corinthians were being selfish And in doing so, they despised the church of God corporately because they saw the Lord's Supper as something for them only, themselves only. I need to go get my food, my drink in the Lord's Supper here. And they were neglecting and despising their brother and sister in Christ. And so his greater argument here, don't you have homes to drink and eat in? Personal preferences are to be set aside for the greater nourishment and good of the body of Christ. as part of his argument. Don't look at it so individualistically. He continues, this is part of a, a, a bigger section, 1 Corinthians 12, talking about spiritual gifts. He says a lot there in 1 Corinthians 12. I ho- hope that you can kind of remember some of it so they don't have to go through it all. But here he's talking about all the varieties of spiritual gifts that God has given individual Christians. And he's saying, look, it's the same Spirit that's given them. It's the same Lord. It's a lot of activities, but it's the same God. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. Not the individual good, but the common good. The common good is to be kept primarily in view. That's part of his argument in this entire section. He says he gives the analogy of the body, right? And the many members of the body. And it's corporate. Some some are the eyes, some are the hands, some are the feet, right? And he's saying there's one spirit, there's one body. Um, there's, um, does not consist of, the body does not consist of one member, but of many His view, his perspective is, look, look at the body of Christ as corporate. 
as you being individual members of one body. This will help you get that corporate perspective. And he continues on. He says in verse 24 here, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The point here, the mystical unity of the body of Christ is in view. We all support one another. We all stand or fall together. And so we're called to look at worship and the practice and gifting of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, with this corporate perspective rather than an individual perspective. Let me show you where he goes from here to make application. He really brings this all to a head in 1 Corinthians 14. Regarding speaking in tongues. I just want to make note here, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about speaking in tongues. It talks about the gift of prophecy, the gift of interpretation. Now, while those miraculous gifts um, are no longer active in the church today because we have the full revelation of God in the Scripture, um, the principles that Paul gives are still very applicable and very relevant to how we are to understand worship. He says here, Even in your speaking in tongues, strive to excel in building up the church. What is in view here? The church. When you speak in tongues, look at building up the church. This is the goal of your spiritual gifts when you come together and worship. To build up the church. And he goes on then to condemn them. um, Not condemn them, sorry. To instruct them. He says, let all things be done for building up the body of Christ, right? Then he gives these specific instructions. If, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and then each in turn let someone interpret. But if no one's there to interpret, keep silent. Let two or three prophets speak. And he goes on, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The point I want to make here is that the fact that an individual Christian had been given a supernatural revelation in a tongue or prophecy took a back seat to the greater need of the needs of the body of Christ in worship. He's like, no more two or three are allowed to speak regardless of what they had to say. Can you imagine you know, getting a word from the Lord? But some guy stands up, some three guys stand up before you do, and now you have to be silent? It's like, wait a second, let me exercise my spiritual gift. Let me tell you what the Lord told me. But Paul is saying, look, that's going to take a back seat to the fact that there's to be things done in order, in peace, and that all things are to be done for the building up of the body of Christ no matter what we do in worship, it should be, all should be intentionally fitted to edify and build up the body as a whole. And I've got to wrap this up. But my conclusion here, Nathan's going to laugh at this one. 
Your view of worship is directly related to your view of the church. <laughs> is salvation simply about you and God? Is the Christian life simply about your own private spiritual discipline and experience? Is worship just about your experience and what you get out of it, how it makes you feel? Well, I argue that the New Testament clearly calls us to recognize that we have been saved not as individuals, but as part of a body. This touches so many other doctrines. We've been part, chosen and saved as part of the body of Christ, not just here locally, but globally, and not just in this generation, but transgenerationally as well. The body of Christ spans thousands of years, and we're to recognize that we're part of that body. And so the gospel informs us that we're not saved in this isolation, that we are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, and this is to guide our understanding of worship. And so regarding music, regarding liturgy, regarding the tone of worship, the attitude, the preaching, the teaching, the prayers, we must approach each one of these things in light of the corporate nature of the church, And as I will argue next week, when we talk about the differences between public and private worship, we have much more freedom to worship God in private according to our own personal preferences. But in public, the needs of the community must be placed first. And what may be permissible in private becomes a violation of the law of love when practiced in public. Violation of the Word of God when practiced in public. All right, I've got to end this. Um, Sorry we don't have any time for questions. Uh, Feel free to come talk to me afterwards. But we'll recap next week and uh, jump into specifically defining what worship is according to the Scriptures and then jump into public versus private and uh, go on from there. So let's pray. Our Lord, we thank You for Your Word, again, which guides us into truth that the Lord has promised would sanctify us, that He would sanctify us, by your truth. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would indeed write this upon our hearts, that it would guide our thinking, our actions, Lord, and even the thoughts and intentions of our heart, that they may be pleasing to you. Be with us now as we do turn towards worship, that you might be honored and glorified in this place today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.